Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our members of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position along with your favorite beverage to enjoy the discussion. We remind our audience to examine the show notes attached to each of our shows to better understand how our program functions. Before we get into our discussion today, we want to say thanks for questions coming from our audience at Smith Weekly, including Luke A, Gordon S, Alan B, and Cindy W. Returning to the program today is Mr. Jim Cornell. Jim is the president of Nucor Energy LLC, a fuel cycle consultancy that provides advisory services to various clients in the uranium fuel cycle and utility segments of the nuclear power industry. You can learn more about Nucor Energy via their website, nucorenergy.com. Jim, welcome back. Thank you, Andrew. I was looking forward to it. I always enjoy our conversations. They follow all sorts of topics in different directions and it gives us uh, you know, both an opportunity to, to educate ourselves about developments that uh, we, we might not have uh, paid as much attention to. Jim, it's been a while since we've chatted and you know, it makes good for that because if you chat too frequently on these things, especially this business, as slow as things can move and then all of a sudden things move extremely fast, We've had a number of events since we last spoke and definitely is more fun to have a bit of a long form and rather than some of the talking heads out there seem to beat this industry to death with, with stuff that's too frequent. So great to have you back. I trust everything's going well there. You've uh, transitioned from the cold New York down to the warmer Florida, which is excellent. So good to have you on. Just generally here, Jim, why don't we just kick it off? We're a couple weeks into 2023 current market conditions. We've seen a little bit of perk up in the equities in the market. Maybe it holds, maybe it doesn't. But uh, what do you expect for 2023? What are your thoughts here? Well, I think people would, you know, certainly uh, uranium producers were disappointed that none of the legislation that they were supporting finally even that made its way or they tried to get onto the omnibus budget failed to appear. You know, part of that would have been a ban on Russian and Chinese imports. The date was still being debated, whether it was going to be immediate or at some point in the future. But, you know, that was something that would have provided a lot of support for for not only U.S. production, but Western production and also uh, funding for HALU, which would have been you know, what was being targeted would have resulted in a significant demand for U.S. and Western uranium production. So. Both of those uh, bills, uh, you know, failed to make it through the last Congress. The future of both of them is still uncertain, and, and given the fact that the Republican Congress is looking to cut back on spending, it, it's much less likely that we're going to see something pass. So I think it detracted certainly from the promise of of 2023. However, um, if you look at the fundamentals. And I think that's what you have to really look at. I mean, you can't rely on the government to uh, support an industry. So it's looking at uh, this year, you still have sound fundamental, very, very thin spot market. Overfeeding is is still, we're going to see that this year uh, really come on strong. We're increasing annual demand somewhere between 18 and 22 million pounds. It's even more dramatic when you think about I look at it as like a, almost a 40 million pound reversal before underfeeding was putting, you know, between 18 and 22 million pounds into the market. Now it's gone and that's because we're, they're overfeeding. Uh, that's going to create increase annual demand by the equivalent amount, which is really when you put them together, 36 to 40 million pound transition. That's pretty significant. Spot supply is very limited. Uh, I think spot pretty much uh, took most of the whatever was left uh, in terms of inventory overhang. I, I my feeling is that spot absorbed that. And right now you have very little, even while the demand has been pretty anemic in the spot market, so has the supply. It won't take much. You can see the spot price has been hovering around $50, goes down to 48 to 52 staying in that range. People have to be patient. Once the uh, equity markets uh, return, which they will, we all know that we're sitting in a recession and people, and, uh, investors are very careful, understandably. 
once we come out of this, and depending upon, I don't, you know, there's all different opinions on the severity of this recession, but let's just say once you get past the mid mark of, of this year, it will be looking into 2024 and the, you know, equities will pick up and if Sput is able to raise money again, which with, with their ATM, it won't take much to bring this market up, you know, above 60 quickly in the spot market. Also looking at the long-term market, if you look at the uh, published prices, they've lifted up significantly for U308 and, and it's gone in the 50s, now it's in the mid 50s. And as you, what you're seeing is a lot of long-term contracting. And that indicates that the producers that have uh, available production, essentially contracting for that. And that's being sort of, you know, utilities are trying to take that off the table. And, uh, you know, you're getting to the point where Cameco could be very well sold out, maybe by the, certainly by the middle of this year, going forward, perhaps maybe for the next uh, six to 10 years. You know, it's very hard to get uh, data on long-term contracting because that's held very tightly by both the utilities and, and the producers. But if you look at the volumes that are being contracted, you know, you could, you, you could just... Um, conclude that the you know the producers that have available production uh, are out there selling it and what happened what's going to happen is once once that layer of production is absorbed you're going to have to look at the next tier of production which you know is very unknown uh that's the you know a lot there's a lot of developers out there you know people talking about getting into production but seasoned veterans in this industry understand one thing that that it's a lot easier to talk about your reserves and a heck of a lot more difficult to actually produce uranium, especially you know when you're talking about the permits. It depends on if you're using conventional mining up in Canada. It's very complicated, and and uh, in situ recovery is you know more art than than science. You know, and, and I think everybody will learn that going forward. So I and I we don't know what those strike prices will be. Is it going to be sixty five dollars that brings out the next tier of production or seventy five? You know, it, that's a real unknown, and when and that will be tested at some point this year. So uh, let me take a break there and see you know what kind of follow follow up you would have on those comments. Yeah, I, with respect to the the government programs and this government's. Well, as you know, Jim, you've been in government long enough and been close to government long enough that you know it's becoming more dysfunctional, sadly, compared to the words, I'm from the government, I'm here to help, uh, was so much more meaningful in the 80s and 90s. And I'm not even that experienced compared to you. But uh, I want to come back to the government comment and come back to the DOE contracts, which were recently awarded, which you're aware of. Although the volume, quite small amongst those, I think it was five awards, it does provide a bit of a, an indicator going forward here as to what those numbers will likely be based on more serious volume. But you're right. I mean, as far as chemical goes, and I want to come back to chemical too, we've got some other stuff to discuss there. The prime of these existing mines that have been restarted, uh, MacArthur, Cigar, et cetera, these things have really passed the prime of their lives, uh, certainly are on the decline to some degree high graded, but there's still some left. But really, by the time you get, boy, get late decade, what's left. And obviously, capitals need to get to be deployed into new projects here. And I'm sure Cameco will be working on some of that as well. And then how sticky and saturated this overfeeding will start to become. Will that start to get a grip this year? Or does it really start to hack into 2024 and onward? And then, of course, the last thing with respect to the broad market, how much the broad market impacts this uranium market this year. And and don't have enough of a test yet. We've only the first half of January here. We'll need some more time to see what the broad market does and does it drag the equities down with it here yet to be seen. But let me ask you this. What is next, Jim, in terms of when you look out in the global landscape and you talk about what new mine can come on that will actually make an impact on this market? And I'm not talking about restart operations, but maybe you could look out there in terms of new development does that new development come from Canada? Does it come from somewhere else? What What do you think is the next oh, big one the, to come on to actually support? Well, the one big project that you know the Kazakhs have been touting is a, a new mine that would ultimately be pro producing 15 million pounds a year. You know, I think that's underway. They had set up that the government fund. I think they raised the 
75 or 100 million dollars and to buy some output I mean, they were looking around trying to find a, an outlet for this volume of uranium. This is early last year before things sort of changed within the um, long-term outlook for nuclear with the Chinese now making a bigger commitment and the South Koreans and the Indians and all this. But early on, they, they're moving forward with this massive mine development, but not seeing where they could place it. So they were trying to find financial entities that would come in and, and buy it probably would have been a pretty good deal for somebody you now looking back, you know, to make a commitment to buy and but they wanted all sorts of restrictions placed on it that you, you couldn't resell and or the timing of the, of the resell would have to be based upon their consent and things like that. But I think that's a big one. And, and I, I assume, you know, the cost might not be as low as their existing production facilities, but it certainly would be low cost. Um, look at that also and say, you know, with the Chinese really now more being much more aggressive in terms of their build out, that a lot of that production would go to China. Certainly with the Russians also, they're demanded, they're still building nuclear power plants. I mean, despite all, all of this debacle in the Ukraine, they are still moving forward with the reactors in Turkey and Egypt and India course, in China and the Russians, they, as everyone knows, they're, when they sell a reactor, they sell fuel for the life of that reactor, uh, the only company that does that. As a result, they, they have their own internal uranium demand, which has been projected to go to be, you know, for the Russians that, you know, at some point when they get enough new builds out there, they flip from being a, a net exporter to a net importer. So that's another one. And, and the Russians do control almost 40% of the Kazakh uh, uranium reserve base. You know, that, that sort of offsets the increased production there. But I, other than Kazakhstan, I really think you, you'd be hard pressed to find a large project that can come on board in you know, a reasonable amount of time. I'm saying maybe even eight years that could come in and, and meet, you know, demand. And a lot of these, uh, these projects would require a, quite a marketing effort. I think it would be it's very challenging. Having dealt years ago with Olympic Dam, when they were uh, at that time looking to increase their production from like 10 million a year to 20 million, because they were going to increase their copper production. You know, they were coming around uh, to everybody, including, you know, when I was president of Newcam and, and wanted to, um, you know, they were trying to find an outlet for this and, and bankable contracts. They, you know, they didn't want to go ahead and, and make the, ex uh, go ahead with the expansion without having the production committed. So that, and, and they couldn't do it. And I mean, it's a tough, it's a really difficult thing to go to a utility and sit down and say, listen, I am going to develop this mine. It's, it, might, it might take me eight years to get in production. And, I, and when I get in production, it's going to produce, let's just say 10 million pounds a year, some big project. And I want to sell you 2 million of it per year. And I'm sitting there as a utility uh, looking at that. And I'm gonna, that's quite a bet to give someone a fixed you know, price contract that far out and knowing all the uncertainties. And having to and have rely on the, that schedule that producers hoping to meet. So I think a lot of these big projects are going to have a real tough time getting up and going. And I think as a result, you're going to have, and they're going to cost a lot more. It's going to be a very interesting inflection point out there once all of this this current tier of production has been committed. And it's if you look at the data, you know, these utilities are, you know, they're, they're smart guys. They've been in the industry a long time. They know what they're doing. And they're saying they, they want to take out that tier because they don't want to get to the next tier. It's like a race. So, you know, once, the, so what we're doing is like all ex, the existing re, reactor fleet globally is, com, is out there buying up that first tier. So when we go to the next, you know, re, reactor tier, whatever that would be, SMRs, or just new light water reactors, different parts of the world, any new uranium demand that comes on board, they're the ones that are going to have to address this and go to that second tier of producers. And that's when we'll see some significant increase in pricing. Yeah. 
It is an interesting set of dynamics here. And as you mentioned, some of these developments, uh, man, it's going to be a tough road. And some of these developers are paying themselves like they're producers today. I mean, look at some of these salaries coming in just based on 2021 and 2022 data. Good grief. Uh, it's like they're already in production. So <laughs> you have to share that with me because I, I see you, you, I follow the market. You, you follow the, the equities closely and look at the financial. I didn't know these guys were hauling down some serious compensation. Oh yeah. No, man. It's like they're already in the, the late stage bull cycle compensation stage for some of these, but yeah, I will. I'll, I'll share that with you when I get a chance to drop you an email with the, with some of the organized information on that. It, it's really alarming and to get away with it is surprising to me, but and nobody seems to care, at least in some of the cases of them. And of course, uh, the ones who do care probably aren't there. I want to touch on some of the things you already mentioned, but this DOE award, this first process under the reserve program, and again, get serious. Let's see some real money come out under this program. But at least they did a test solicitation. It looks like they did a blanket award to all the, really the qualified folks who met the criteria under the technical proposal part. And really price did not seem to be as long as it was reasonably in the ballpark, close to a home run, small volumes, Jim, but you know, what does this reserve program look like to you at this point? What's your opinion on the awards and some of the prices? Uh, what do you think about this? Frankly, I think it's all irrelevant. The Department of Energy, or I mean, NNSA, which was with, you know, the, the agency within the DOE that sort of responsible for the program took two years to do what would probably take two minutes for a trading company or even spot to uh accomplish it was the whole thing was showed that how you know the messed up the bureaucracy is in washington you know they had to simplify it they went really to produce u.s producers that had inventory they what they went they went away from production so it never really did anything to bootstrap production which was the intention and you know they, some some of the companies they put in you know put in lower prices and as a result they just got a larger reward but they still were sprinkling it around because I I don't know why you know, they could have just taken it from the lowest probably lowest bidder if they wanted to so I I don't attach anything of significance to this thing that's a one and done and then and also they didn't they had to buy conversion so um, I would be interested to see no one's. Converdine hasn't come out and informed anybody what they got paid. I'd like to see that number. Um, they, they were totally silent on it because they, uh, I, I really know Honeywell's a public company, so I would think they have a disclosure responsibility. But, you know, what, what they were the sole source bidder on this, you know, what did they put in? You know, the spot market for conversions has been somewhere like in the 40s. I, I, you know, did they put in 50 or 60? Who knows? Um, right. It's nice to have the specifications written around exactly who you intend to have supply. This is how crazy it was. If they were going to actually buy, you know, mine produced uranium as opposed to inventoried, they were going to have to do meet all these, you know, go through a whole qualification process and environmental assessments. I mean, this would have taken years. I mean, this is how ridiculous the whole thing is. So what it did was it indicated that there's no way that the government is going to be able to bootstrap actual U.S. production because it would take when once they finally got through all of the permitting, the qualification requirements, just you know the mines would either either the already the market would be up and going and there won't be it wouldn't be any uranium available because everybody's in full production or else they'll all be shut down. I mean that's just that's just the long and short of it. Yeah, the contracting officer, even though they won't have any real real pull other than just the administrative part of the process, get some real capital behind this and then also make it a real qualification in terms of, okay, you've got a licensed facility, which means that if it's already licensed and bonded, et cetera, that you should be able to meet those environmental requirements reclamation. You've already committed to that. Okay, now provide us pounds. We want pounds this date. Force them to actually come into production, prove that up. There's a default, there's a default, but let's get serious yeah. about it. But anyway. You know, I hate, hate to, you know, it's, it's awful to point this out, but, you know, there is, a, you know, a, the anti-mining constituency in Washington is a very powerful and influential one. And most people in the industry understand that. There's a knee-jerk reaction there. I mean, and you can't, it's all these bureaucrats who are 
sprinkled around various agencies, when anything relating to mining comes up, they try and stop it. Doesn't matter. And that's why when we talk about things like becoming self-sufficient in battery metals or, you know, something that, you know, that's critical to our, our economy, it gets crushed. You, you yes. have to have, there's, there's, not the, there's not the will there. And ultimately, they'll have to. They're going to have to get a group of people who are you know, pro, you know, mining, pro infrastructure, drilling, back with oil and gas, the same deal. Uh, and, right. and take these people and, and roll them. I mean, that's what happens in Washington. You have to roll somebody. And rolling, rolling a group is, is costs a lot of money and takes a lot of effort. But it's necessary. Yeah. But it's not happening now. No, I'm sure there's a lot of brown bag lunches involved. And the bottom line of it is, Jim, is even the U.S. code. I mean, it's just it's disregarded. It's the agencies are above the law. And the administrative rules now, which are generated internally agency by agency, intra-agency, you can't get out of it. And it's just it's degenerate shit. The bigger thing is like, you know, I'm talking like in a potential positive. At some point, you know, we're looking at, you know, still Russia is supplying a significant amount of our uranium needs. And if you put them together with Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan, it's somewhere around 60%. If you see what's happened with the conversion and, and enrichment price, that's going to work its way down to uranium. You, you know, the, the utilities would been focused last year on enrichment and conversion contracting. And this year, they're going to be focusing on uranium. So we'll, we will definitely see some uh, pickup in pricing just that's attributable to that development. But the other thing is people are not paying attention to Russia. This war is going on as, you know, as it completely deteriorates, as the Russians you know, are exposed as a, as a really weak uh, nation and getting weaker. And, and, and the level of the atrocities that they've committed become, are, are just thrown every day into people's face. These utilities are weaning themselves off of Russian supply I think as quickly as they can. Certainly, there won't be any new contracting for Russian supply. And I think that's going to be, that will take a little while to have an impact, but it will be a significant impact. And I think the more that you know, people understand that Kazakhstan, as much as they try to appear to be independent, essentially wouldn't, they wouldn't be alive today if it wasn't for the Russians coming in and, and, and quelling the public uh, unrest. So, it's, it's, there's a greater awareness that's going on. It's going to impact the Kazakhs. The Kazakhs are still trying to develop this Trans-Caspian route, which, and it doesn't look like it's really that viable. And the other part is that most people aren't aware. Rus the Russians have a litigation against them in, in the U.S., a judgment against um, uh, 10 10X is U.S. subsidiary that su supplies a lot of uranium, uh, has contracts with the U.S. utilities. And there's been a judgment against them and it's somewhere in the neighborhood of $400 million. This case is before the uh, U.S. District Court in Washington. And I, I, it looks very likely that the Russians are going to lose. Um, this case has been going on for quite a while, but it's getting close to resolution. And, and um, that would happen is they would be able to attach uh, 10M's assets or the deliveries from 10X into the U.S. to U.S. utilities. Now. It hasn't received a lot of publicity because it's been going on long enough. But um, if they, if they, if this, if the court rules that they're able to uh, enforce this judgment, one of two things is going to happen: either the Russians will stop delivering fuel to the U.S. because they don't want to lose four hundred million dollars, or they're going to make these deliveries, and it's going to be very. Uh, the utilities will be paying uh, directly to injured party. This is a development that we should see something in the first half of this year. We're expecting to get uh, a decision from the court. And that can really throw a monkey wrench in because I, you know, the Russians, what their total revenue from the uranium sales into the U.S. is somewhere 850, 900 million. I, I just don't think that they would give half of that away or almost half of it away uh, in order to satisfy its judgment. And then continue supplying. I, I don't know, especially in the case that they've been fighting so vigorously. So let's let's see about that too. And I think people that could be a surprise. Yeah, awaiting the outcome on that, trying to keep an eye on Pacer and seeing what gets filed there. But definitely, uh, 
when you look at that and you look at the energy, the other markets there with respect to oil, I think you and I have talked about this, the drop in the pond. Who's going to cut it off first if it gets cut off? So it'll be interesting to see what happens with this specifically and what the impacts are. Going back to Russia, Ukraine, as you know, you've been involved in a number of arrangements and deals over the last few decades in government and assisting with that. And, you know, this game's been played since World War II. And the history of Ukraine and Russia has been played, obviously, goes way back before that. But this game is being essentially played coming out of World War II all the way up through the Cold War, et cetera, where we are now. Very unfortunate situation and the impacts uh, yet to see all those and the distances that this goes into the future, I think, is going to be substantial. There's a few things I want to touch on there, Jim, and come back to, and we've also just covered this off a little bit here. And the other piece, the Kazakhstan part, the instability in Kazakhstan. With the 22 events, specifically the impacts coming from Kazakhstan instability first, and then, of course, the Russia-Ukraine war startup. How does this current cycle now compare with the last cycle, Jim, which you've been a part of both? Are the conditions of this cycle much more sticky? Well, I, I think this we're in a situation that's very similar to what happened pre-Fukushima. It's it's sort of, you know, that unfortunately that, you know, just threw everything for a loop and set the, the nuclear industry back, uh, oh, I don't know, well, at least like right now, when you say 10, 12 years, you know, China at that time was on a trajectory to build up like 300 reactors. Korea was going to expand significantly. Japan was going to go to 50 reactors. Um, certainly Germany wasn't going to be shutting down any of its reactors and not necessarily building new ones. And in the U.S., there was a very you know optimistic outlook. And you know, and what happened subsequent to Fukushima is you shut down 10 reactors here. You stopped, I think, all construction in China for six or seven years. Uh, Japanese, uh, of course, were devastated, and uh, Korea was going to cut back and shut down its entire program. So you had this really, I mean, retrenchment that was, you know, brought the industry down to its knees. The Germans shut down their program, and that's still the case. Europeans across the board started uh, abandoning nuclear. It it was, uh, you know, devastating. And so, um, you know, but we've come full circle. And now, you know, all, all these countries, you know, realizing, you know, that first of all, they have, you know, this zero carbon goals, they re- the reality is that they can only be met by nuclear. Um, and, and even the most progressives have acknowledged that. That's actually kept, stopped the hemorrhaging. You know, that was the big thing. You know, on, in the U.S., uh, the fleet has, has sort of stabilized. You know, we, we were looking at a possibility of shutting down up to 50 reactors, and it would go down to like maybe 50, 55 reactors in the country, uh, which would basically sort of eliminated nuclear for all intents and purposes. So we've seen this turnaround in Japan and Korea. India has really gone much more ambitious than people expected them to be. The Chinese, of course, have really doubled down. So we're, we're sort of back up. And at the same time, what was you know, what sort of kept nuclear going was the fact that Russia and China have been, they've looked at nuclear plant exports as an extension of their foreign policy and have been willing to subsidize us. So during this period when when everything else was looking dismal, the Chinese and the Russians were out actually taking nuclear power plant orders, significant numbers of them. Now, a lot of that, I've always said, it's, it's a business. There's two sides to it. The negative side is most of these countries want nuclear power plants because they ultimately want to build nuclear bombs. And the Russians and the Chinese have been totally uh, adverse to any uh, non-proliferation regime. And that's just the fact that nobody really focuses on. Um, but that's really what's been going on. So, and you see it now um, more starkly when you see the South Koreans calling for, you know, reports restoring U.S. nuclear weapons in there after they were with, withdrawn in 1991, and the Japanese even talking about getting nuclear weapons. So, you know, what we're going to see, we're, we're in a phase of proliferation, and it's being sort of supported by development of nuclear power plants because people, they realize they can extract the plutonium from the spent fuel to make bomb-grade material. But that's, and unfortunately, that's the good and the bad news, but that's what's kept nuclear alive for 10 years. And now we see all this attention being given to new reactor technologies. At the same time, we don't, 
we're not seeing, you know, we're, we're, we just you hear a lot about it, SMRs, but, you know, we haven't gotten to the point where, you know, we're only looking at building one in Canada, Poland, and, and Chinese are building. I think they just deployed their first one. So, you know, we have to still have to see where that goes. But the fundamentals of nuclear are good also because natural gas prices are high, you know, but $7 an MMBTU. When they were two, they were, you know, it was natural gas that was crushing nuclear. It wasn't even renewable, sort of did damage, but there's no way a nuclear power plant was going to compete against natural gas at those prices. So we, we've seen a, you know, that, that turnaround. And uh, certainly to the extent that countries remain committed to zero carbon goals, and some of these things are almost unrealistic, but nuclear is the only way to get there. And that's it's certainly the case. I mean, anybody, in, you know, an informed and educated energy policy individual understands that they understand that all these other this other stuff is just pie in the sky we, we know that solar panels and windmills are never going to do the job and so if we want to get there you're going to have to build a hell of a lot of nuclear power plants and it's just a matter of you know where whether you know countries um you know are willing to put the the right policies in place to facilitate that yeah, lots of good points, Jim. So I believe just roughly here, I'll have to dial in this number, but it's between the Rosatom reactor order book with their clients globally is somewhere between 150 and $250 billion. That's serious. I mean, that, that makes the U.S. <laughs> look like- Oh, a yeah. We're, we're, we're a piker. Um, we're talking about stuff in Poland, you know, a very a country that is a very you know close Eastern European ally, but no, just think of Russian, Russians building reactors in a NATO country in Turkey uh, or in Egypt, where we thought of we thought we had influence. I mean, Saudi Arabia and China. China is looking at building significant number of reactors in Saudi Arabia. Why? Because the Saudi Arabians, they want a nuclear bomb. And the Russians and the Chinese do not attach any nonproliferation requirements to their sale of fuel or the reactor. We still do that. We're never going to sell a reactor. I mean, it's fine, except for a place like Poland, but you know, we, we, because they, they, you know, that's that's it's clear those countries, they don't care, they really don't. The Chinese and Russians have no, they don't, they're not concerned for someone else, another country develops the bomb. And in fact, I, I would be surprised if you know there's these very high level agreements to provide the, the technology to those countries because they don't have to, they they don't. They want to develop an enrichment capability. That's what they, they build the reactors, and then they want to develop the entire front end of the fuel cycle, which includes enrichment. We don't allow that. It boils down to, would you rather go ahead and waive those requirements in order to get the contract? I'm speaking in favor of the U.S. strategy, and we've talked about this years ago, matter of fact. You have to waive those requirements, get the contract, and at least still align your alliances properly. Because if you don't, we're not going to sell you goods and services because of these requirements. But our competitors have waived those requirements. This is game over. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's oh, we're, we're we're out of it. I mean, to the point where we, we can't even do it, and it deals with the South Koreans because they want to develop an enrichment capability, and so everybody yeah. wants. And it's not that complicated. I mean, Pakistan can do it. India, can, you know, certainly did it. And you got, you have this already is what's going on with Iran. I mean, the Israelis are saying they're not going to let them develop the capability. They're going to take it out. I mean, we're looking at serious threats that are staring us in the face. But, you know, no one's going to do anything about it till something happens. But that's, right. yeah, you're right. When I mean, you look at the order book and you look at the order book for the Chinese, what, I mean, what are they they're building one in Argentina or they're finishing the, the Angra 3 or something. You know, the Chinese have so much technology. Take the pebble bed technology. They just deployed the pebble bed technology this year that they purchased from my the, the old company I work with, NuCam. They developed that. Sold it to South Africa. The, the South Africans sold it to China. I mean, the Chinese have every imaginable type of reactor. They've got the micro reactors they got the smrs they have the on the barges they're putting them in ships i mean there's we're so far behind it's it's pathetic government needs to be ran like a for-profit business and, and once you get that sorted out it's pretty clear that you bring in talent but anyway that's a different conversation 
but definitely the trade secret with respect to enrichment, fuel cycle, et cetera, that's out, man. You, you gave that, yeah. it's already out and it's too right. late. So you have to now readjust the specifications to meet current market conditions and become competitive again. With that, I'll just add one other thing. And I mentioned this before, we've covered this a couple of years ago in a presentation, the motivation and the production capabilities when it came to U.S. reactor build-out from 1970 to 1990, Jim, we went back and looked at that period. And the reactor number was, I don't have it in front of me here, but I'm going off of memory, but I believe it was 70 reactor units brought online between 1970 and 1990. Really impressive for the groups, the construction companies, the expertise, the government policy, and everybody getting together to be able to do that kind of feat. That's an impressive record. Maybe one day we'll see this come out somewhere, but uh, that's quite a record. Oh, absolutely. That's when this country could get things done. Like, like look at a place like New York State. I think they, they built one gas-fired 1,100 megawatt plant in the last 20 years. That's it. I mean, in terms of addition of power to power, and yet all these all these states are are establishing these electrification goals where. You know, they think electricity, they think it's, they don't realize that what it, how electricity is generated. It could be by natural gas or coal or, um, but they, you know, they think electric is clean, which it is, but they want to go to complete electrification without building new power plants. I mean, it's like insanity. Yes, absolutely. Okay. So back to term contracting, discussed this briefly before, but term contracting was around that circa 100 million pounds during 2022. Where do you think we are in the long-term contracting cycle, Jim? Are we in a sustained period of heavier volumes uh, going forward? Um, it's going to be, you know, we have an existing, I said, there's an existing reactor fleet globally. And, you know, that is, you know, those reactors are currently trying to cover their needs for at least six years into the future. And that's what this con that contracting is all about. Now, there's still a group of them that have not, you know, they've been just given their own timing of, of fuel purchases. You know, they haven't, um, you know, they're going to be coming out this year and maybe the year after, because a lot of them have, you know, have been already covered earlier on. So I, I would say we're going to see this level of contracting for the next, um, say two to three years and then that will have taken out and, and covered all of that the existing fleet globally for the next i said at that point six to ten years that and and then it and the question is whether or not they will have absorbed all of the existing production that's you know currently available or that they'll have to step up to the next level of production and to right. the guys who are still looking at building a project, you know, for instance, the honeymoon, they contracted is uh, Paladin fully contracted. You know, those are the kind of, you know, once those projects are contracted, you know, what's the next level? That is a Bannerman out there. Is that uh, what's going to take for Bannerman to get out, you know, up and going and what pricing? I'm not assuming any new builds though. I mean, I, you know, we, we, if there's new builds out there, then that's, you know, that's a whole new game. If they really start deploying SMRs, or especially in, in the West, um, you know, then then you have a whole whole different situation because they usually will contract way in advance of, of the startup of the plant, you know, like, you know maybe you know, significantly far in advance, and that will that would cause a, you know an increase in long term demand that's really wasn't anticipated. Definitely, at this point, there's no doubt that. Uh no matter how you cut it the new builds are going to be needed it doesn't matter how you try to dice and slice the pie here of, of what is existing you're still significantly short with that um, comes into this other point that i wanted to bring up was the fuel cycle services we discussed this the pricing increasing notably conversion enrichment uh, pricing the bottlenecks that exist there already and now with the price increases, uh, what is your take with respect to the tails assay adjustments and where this piece of the demand added really hits the road? What do you think there where fuel cycle service is going to need more U308s? And when do you start to see that really coming into this market and really hitting the road? I think we see it this year. I think it's already happening. 
like I said earlier in the, in the discussion, when you said what's going to happen in 2024, uh, 2023 and 24, you know, when you, when you reverse the, the um, underfeeding to overfeeding, that's a change of almost you know, 40 million pounds per year from you, you not only taking stuff off the market, but it has to be replaced. That replacement, that's, that, that means is that Urenko and Orano are out there either contracting for uranium or in the case of Orano is, you know, they're taking their, their own production from, you know, they're one of, you know, they're, you know, they're a silent producer. You don't really get, you know, you don't see, they don't make news because they, when, you know, Orano sells uranium, it's always in the form, a form of enriched product. But Orano is going to have to shift and, you know, move more of their own uranium production into, you know, covering that shortfall that's created by increasing the tails assay. And their reason is they, you know, they'd rather sell, they always want to sell enrichment. They don't want to supply a natural uranium. I mean, that was only, they had to do that because they lost all of their, you know, their contracts to, to, to the Japanese when at the Fukushima. So this is a de major development, you know, that, that the market, you know, it's brought up now by more and more analysts sort of understand the dynamic of underfeeding and overfeeding. But it wasn't, it wasn't until recently, no one even understood it. And I think this is a huge development and it's happening already. That's why we see very little in the way of spot supply, nothing out there, nothing of significance. So that's a major change in this market. There's always over inventory overhangs. I mean, I've been in the industry of 35 years. There's always been something out there that would come out of nowhere, government inventories, um, former Soviet inventories, Japanese inventories as a result of Fukushima. People are always wondering, where did this stuff come from? Well, it was, you know, you just look at what started it all. I mean, when they cut back on the reactor programs here in the U.S., you know, they were, we were going to build somewhere like over 300, and a lot of the reactors got canceled because of lack of power demand. And uh, meanwhile, these utilities had, had contracted for significant volumes, and then they pushed those into the spot market. So this has been ongoing, but, you know, we've gotten to the point where there, there isn't much in the way of spot material that's why the prices just stays around 50. i mean there's no demand right now but there's no supply so it doesn't take much for spot once they start once the equity markets change and spot's able to raise money again i i would i, I think there's no holding back the spot market you know it's but it's yeah. really it's you know people, people get frustrated but you know, they see a disconnect, but there is a disconnect between equities and uranium pricing because it's, they, they're independent. They're sort of, they're sometimes, even though they related to one another, they're not, they're still independent of one another. And they get frustrated. Oh, how, you know, what, why, why is the price only, you know, you know, this level? Well, it's a more of a macro issue, uh, issue than it is micro. Good points. And there's some trading manipulation and some various things that are taking place here with opportunities in the physical uranium side versus opportunities in the equities and how you can leverage your positions to potentially impact um, your positions on both sides of that trade. There's, there's definitely some playing around and we'll get past that. And then with increased competition for pounds, whether it be new funds, whether it be utilities, whether it be fuel services coming in and needing pounds, there's going to be a lot of competition for pounds going forward. A good chunk of that competition will fall into the long-term market rather than spot market. Jim, let's move on here. The Cameco Westinghouse Brookfield arrangement. What does this do for the business? What are your thoughts on this? Well, there's a lot of questions, and that, that I would have just you know about the about the Cameco stretching itself into you know that area. They do fabricate Hindu fuel. They, you know, they had acquired the Westinghouse subsidiary years ago. Uh, it was up in Canada, so they they have been fabricating fuel. They, you know, and they were involved with Bruce Power. Uh, that turned out to be a, an attractive investment for them. Um, you know, they sold their interest, and I forgot the timing of all that right now. But they've always been in the Kendu reactor market and and you know fuel fabrication. They basically have had a monopoly because I mean I think GE also fabricates Kendu fuel. 
but it's maybe maybe they don't any longer. Maybe they even maybe even Chemico acquired that, so they might have you know, total control over can do fabrication. So you know they're venturing into a new territory where there is competition. The fuel fabrication part of the of the fuel cycle has not been very profitable uh, because of that competition. It's helped that um, Westinghouse, prior to the Cameco acquisition, was developing, uh, had successfully developed and sold BVER fuel. So the uh, Eastern European reactors that were uh, designed and built by the Russians uh, could be supplied from a Western source. So I, mean, I think that that's a positive. It sort of gives them a, a big edge. And that, I think, though, that the French also now are developing VVER uh, compatible fuel as well. So, but the point is that there is competition in this area. If, and, and, and the other part is the risk of building new reactors. Um, you know, I don't think Cameco, this is something, you know, Cameco is a mining company. And a mining company that has had challenges with its mining operations over the years. Uh, when Jack Welsh looked at buying Westinghouse, it was years ago. Westinghouse was on the block, and um, GE was about to put a bid in on on, on, a, on a Monday. And Jack Welsh over the weekend thought about it, and then told him to you know cancel that. And um, and I don't know if the, the next day was Three Mile Island or, or uh, Chernobyl. Uh, I forgot which one of them, but you know made Jack Welsh look like a hero. You know they were essentially going to buy Westinghouse for five billion dollars. I forgot exactly, but some significant number. And you know they didn't put a bid in. And so you know I think this you know they're getting into reactor construction. They're looking at building reactors in Eastern Europe. They went bankrupt building reactors in. For Southern companies and for Scana down in South Carolina um, and Alabama and Georgia. And you look at their lineup, management lineup, they don't have anybody there who has fuel fabrication ex- expertise, which is really an engineering reactor servicing re, uh, experience like you'd have with uh, that's a big source of Westinghouse's income. And, you know, most importantly, reactive construction experience. I don't, and even though they are a minority partner, I don't know to what extent they're going to get involved, or how they expect what the, what the synergies are. But I mean, these are these are, um, you know, it's it was like when when they uh, it's it's like Cameco getting into Silex. I mean, do they have anybody there who has any laser enrichment experience? You would expect that you would have executives. They're, they're, the person that they have in charge of of uh, Silex has, has, to what I understand, I don't think he has any experience with laser uh, separation, isotope separation. And this is, you know, it's pretty pretty technical. I just wonder. I mean, anybody, if you're an analyst, I mean, most people look at companies that venture into new product lines and new 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 you know different areas of business they look at what the management team is this this is set up to somehow uh, help this you know help the, the new target out uh, can they contribute to it or or can they even assess the risk which is the biggest thing I mean that risk assessment comes down to management experience I mean they can put all the risk controls they want in, in place and companies think they can do it by bringing in some consulting firm, firm, but that's just that's just window dressing. You know, if you really want to understand assess risk, you have to bring in management teams that are seasoned veterans who've been there and done it, and they understand where the risks reside. Because frankly, it's very hard to to know where the risks reside unless you're an expert in the business. I mean, just look at where you know Westinghouse bankruptcy. You know, Cameco, you know, they're getting in at a very high valuation. Brookfield is taking you know, $5 billion off the table here. Um, and really, a funny structure, too, is selling, actually have to have one of their funds acquire it. And bringing in Cameco as a minority partner, was that a real valid valuation? I mean, that's really the first question I'd ask. I mean, what's, what's behind that valuation? Is I guess I'm bringing up a, a hell of a lot of question marks. Right. That would need further in, uh, investigation and explanation. Yeah, that I, I know I, that's that would that's just my point of view. 
it is interesting and you bring up some interesting points as well and uh, i've certainly have running list of points over on this side some of which we're going to write about our next member letter an interesting one uh, the downstreaming uh, focus uh, what does it mean for uh, the mining side uh, is the mining side slowly moving away but uh, good stuff there um, appreciate your comments on that and some of the questions you have which match up with some of the stuff i've got over here as well and let's move on to a different subject uh, I know that you have a an opinion on mergers and acquisitions in the Uranium Juniors. You know, you can or cannot mention names, Jim. I completely get that, and I appreciate and respect that. Do you think there's a good marriage out there, or two or three, or is there something you can mention on this area of M&A? And it could be globally. It could be United States only. You know, what do you think, and what do you think makes sense? Well, you know, I think I just have to um, – the best thing to do is look back at – you know, prior M&A outcomes and see, you know, whether, you know, and, and do a post-mortem on them and, and see what, which ones have made sense and which ones haven't. I think that's the st way to start. You know, you'd have to say is um, Encore. Did, um, I don't want to, and I don't want to, let's just say, use them as an example. Look, you know, let's look and see whether those acquisitions, were they accretive and for what reasons? And UEC for all the acquisitions that they've made recently, did some make more sense than the others? And if so, you know what were the reasons for that? What currently is is guiding, uh, you know, an, an analyst um, conclusions about the, this, you know, the, whether the the merits of a particular uh, outcome on, on an, an, in terms of an an M and A outcome. You know, I don't want to disparage anybody. Um, I think all of these, there's a lot of reasons why companies come together. Everybody has a different strategy. It, it's all really comes down to what under putting that that particular M&A strategy against future out, uh, market outcomes in, in the industry. Um, what what exactly would does the investor of, of 2024? Uh, what what would they value? You know, are they going to value Western production? How will investors assess um, Namibian production versus uh, Niger? Or Niger versus Australia? What's what's going to happen with U.S. production? You know, what's you know what's been down to zero? Um, will it start to come back? Which projects in Canada are going to make the most sense? I mean, when when we talked about you know clearing out different tiers of production, you know what's is the denison and isotope going to get into production before a next gen or, or a fission? Is, is ISR going to be com commercially viable there? If it is, it's, you know, it's a, you know, that certainly is a home. I think that's what you really need to look at. Um, and you wonder why, you know, Cameco, it's interesting. Look at their strategy. They're, they're, you know, they're diversifying away from uranium with the Westinghouse acquisition, that was a, a, a big chunk of, of capitals in there. You know, they could have gone in and, and said, you know, we want to buy a uh, rough rider deposit. You know, we like isotope. You know, we think we can ISR. You know, they have they have that ISR expertise down at Smith Branch. You know, we think that's viable. You know, if they really thought, why don't they, you know, why don't they pick up Denison? If you can ISR you know, those two deposits, you're talking about, you know, the lowest cost production anywhere. I mean, forget Kazakhstan. I mean, it's probably going to be, you know, one quarter of what the, if it's could, if it can be done, you know, so you got to think Cameco has been out looking at, you know, has, has, I assume they've, they've been assessing those projects and looking at where to put their place, their bet. And they, they placed the big bet on the future of fuel services, fabrication and reactor new build. I mean, they, they don't see the future as uranium. It's hard to be, it, there's so many different possibilities out there, Andrew, that, and each one has their own strength and, and weakness. And like I said, I don't want to get personal with any, any projects in, in, in particular. Um, I mean, myself, I think that if, if I'm going to, if I was personally in charge of M&A, I would be looking at putting together a group of companies that can really produce, I mean, not just, you know, play pretend that can produce and they would be low CapEx and low OpEx, which is all ISR. I mean, I would be looking around in Western jurisdictions and putting that those packages together, whether through just acquisition or M&A or, you know, 
that's obvious. You, you want to get something that can, can is as close to production as possible. And I think a lot of the investor uh, public does not understand how long, and they don't ask the question, when are you going to be in production? Yes. How many years will it take you to get the first yellow cake into a can? And that's the question yeah. they should be asking. And not all this stuff about, oh my God, I have all these reserves. That doesn't, that doesn't get it. That's not going to put the pay the, the light bill. I mean, that's just hocus pocus stuff. Um, right. And I, I think you really, at this point, we nearly need to have focus on fundamentals. Can you, can you produce? Can you turn I a buck? I appreciate the insights on that, Jim, and, and you give a bit of flavor on what you're thinking there a bit. And valid point with respect to the Canadian developer slash producer arena. There hasn't been a lot of activity up there with respect to M&A thinking there from the perspective of the major developers and, of course, the incumbent producer being Chemico. The Westinghouse Brookfield acquisition does point to those things. And with respect to not necessarily being terribly interested in the mining side, the uptick that uh, Brookfield had when they took Westinghouse in bankruptcy there, I don't remember the year, but it was probably close to five years. Obviously, that uptick is quite a bit different today based on the valuation, and you mentioned that. Companies that can truly produce, right? Instead of the simply promised and promoted, that's that's as far as it goes. And people have probably been scratching their head for years. I know that the, the discussion of chemical buying next gen, that's no secret. That's never come to fruition in the entire time I've been in the sector, and people have been talking about it from the day I started looking at the sector back in late 15. Never happened. Not to say it won't happen, but it hasn't happened over a long period of time that you and I would actually care about, which is at this point, eight years, <laughs> uh, maybe more. And so let's see, and there might be tests for those developers. Well, well look, at, look at how much money Rio Tinto lost on Rough Rider. Sure. Let's not even start counting the amounts of uh, the last cycle acquisitions and fallouts. And in respect to Namibia, some of the transactions that happened there, 2.7 billion comes to mind on that. What's that written down to now? The Rough Rider one, um, the various acquisitions in Australia. Yeah, the Cameco acquisition, yeah. I mean, it was cash written written the whole thing up. Cameco's written off more than they can count. I mean, it it actually probably would have drove them to, you know, Westinghouse. They had to look back at their, you know, their failure rate on, on uranium investments. Maybe there's this thinking that, you know what, let's let some of these developers prove themselves because there might be a good opportunity right in itself that some of these won't actually get over the finish line. Some of them will fail. We'll find out. But some of these will fail. And at that point, we'll step in and take care of it. And in the meantime, we'll let them talk and talk and talk. Some of these write downs were enormous. And it really points to the status of the industry here and what happens uh, later in the cycles here. And and what's, what it's done, though, yeah, it is, it's important is that We've lost a lot of the big companies. Like, you know, Rio is out. Olympic Dam, you know, BHP is in, but, you know, it's only as a byproduct. They've never been interested in developing uranium as a, as a sole product. They just have to get rid of it it's because, they're, you know, they're selling copper. Let's think about the, the composition of the industry. If you don't, if, except for government-controlled entities like the Kazakhs, Uzbeks, the French, you know, you really don't have any major you know, mining company other than Cameco. Yeah. That, that's, I don't, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, who, el- who else is out there? You know, Orano's out there doing a few things, but the Uzbeks, uh, until I see real CapEx flow there, it's not really a a significant concern at this point in terms of what they could potentially do. Well, look at Orano, the the, the scandals that were associated with their acquisitions in Africa. I mean, $4 billion that they wrote off completely. Bango. So what do you do? You know, you're left with an industry that doesn't have, you know, deep pockets. You just think about, I don't know what the, look at the market cap of some of these companies, but let's just take uh, UEC, for instance. What is, I don't know what the market cap is today, but you know how, how many people work for, for them? I mean, I mean, executive staff, maybe 10 at most. I'm not talking people who run around on the mine sites, but I mean, these are small mom and pop shops. As much as they might have a market cap, you know, really look at them and, you know, I mean, a, a, an honest assessment of them is that 
yeah, it was just a couple of guys right. running these things. Yeah, you have more per- people in a McDonald's franchise. Um, you have to look at under, you know exactly how this industry looks. Big companies over the years have been driven out of it, and you know I don't know who's going to come in and replace them because right. it would take to do the consolidation you're talking about takes big money. And even cam, you know, a company that would be, you know, it had to be like a BHP size or a Rio Tinto size. They could consolidate right. this industry. Cameco is even too small to do it. Yeah. So you really, you know, this is this little stuff like mom and pop shops getting together. It's like some guy, but you know, buying up all the delicatessens in, in a suburban area. That's that's really how I would sort of compare it to. Yeah, now it's certainly a stepping stone approach to get to that level of, of a bit of a scale. And so, well, let's move on here. I know you've got better things to do here than, yeah. than chat with me all day, and, and I need to get off the line here too. But just definitely one more question here, and then we'll get to wrap up, Jim. You know, you mentioned before a little bit of diversification. Discussed this in prior chats regarding diversification. You know, more than uranium, the word you know critical minerals comes to mind, or energy metals diversification perhaps into other critical minerals and the opportunity that might bring for other companies. I guess one example I would just mention would be energy fuels and, you know, that dual focus on rare earth plus um, conventional uranium. But maybe that's not the best example, but there's one there in the sector. What do you think about this? What's your position on companies that are maybe past uranium focused that maybe should look at some diversification in critical minerals? What's your position on this? Well, I, I think what uh, energy fuels did was was you know I think I think they were very well managed. I think they they, they really did an excellent job. Um, I think they got a great price from Mustaina, the Alta Mesa project. Um, I'm, I'm sure Encore feels that they did as well because they felt you know they feel there's more reserves there than you know, or it certainly indicated. Uh, and I know essentially you know energy fuels is taking advantage of a very key asset, their mill, the White Mesa mill. It's been around forever, and they're, you know the fact is it's going to it's probably next to impossible to license the conventional mill like that one in the United States today, and um, that gives them you know a very very strong position you know regarding the processing of their metals that have uranium content that need, they need, that needs to be separated out. And that's really how they backed into this rare earth business. I, I know having uh, years ago, um, we looked at a, a rare earth project in, in, in Southeast Asia that it was with, we thought was very unique. This is in my advisory work with Traxxas. And it looked like it was like the greatest discovery in the, in the, on the planet, but it turned out not to be the case. But anyway, as part of the evaluation process, it turned out that there was uranium mixed in with this rare earth deposit that needed to be extracted. And, you know, I, I, we visited with the guys at the mill, White Mason Mill and, and you know, because we knew that we had we have to bring this all the way to White Mesa to basically strip out the uranium content. But there was mostly we we're going to get the, the the rare earths, and it showed to me at the time, and I'm sure that's how, I'm sure that what, when they saw that we were coming to them with the rare earth product that needed to have all the uranium taken out of it, they were sudden like lights went on and said, "Wow, you know, their mill can their mills are you know, the guy who operates that mill is extremely capable. I think he's like the most valuable asset." Um, so that's just I mean I think they're doing a great job. That's a long way of saying that. I think certainly diversification, like ISR producers that can diversify into other metals, develop deposits, commercialized deposits that can't be mined using conventional practices. I think that's a great thing for them to do. I think it, you know, given the fact that the environmental footprint of ISR is almost non-existent. I mean, as you see, as you've been, you know, you've been to, to these ISR facilities. You look out and. You, you don't see anything but pumps. The reclamation, no problem, no disturbance. You know, as long as you're able to treat the water and, and you know adequately, uh, you have wastewater disposal and the right aquifer to dispose. You're in pretty good shape. So, to the, to the extent that you can expand to diversify, you know, horizontally as an ISR producer, I think that's you know fantastic. I, the, yeah, I would say diversification is probably you know more important than concentration in just the uranium. 
you know, it's only so far you can go. I mean, that's what I think. I, I see all these guys trying to combine. And I always think of what's the end goal? I mean, you want to become a, and it's like, okay, I want to be a four million pound producer or a six million pound or 10 million pound producer per year. Um, you know, and I think what you'd really need to do is say, what can I do economically? I mean, where, where financially, what is the best production level from, for my operation? If I do add on something, a new asset, is it going, am I going to be able to produce from it? Am I going to be produced from it at, at a very financially attractive price level? And that's, that's the key to it. And so therefore diversification, if you can find another product where you can uh, mine that more efficiently than you could a new uranium project, I think you want to go in that direction. Jim, you need a profile and a scale with obviously a pipeline, as you alluded to, to really excite and really just get investment behind it. Go after those initiatives. You know, that's where you can also get the torque and the leverage out of, you know, the investment side as the cycle plays out. Appreciate the the insights on that, and it'll be interesting to see how the next uh, year unfolds here. And of course, you and I will keep in touch, and, and we'll look at maybe doing one of these uh, podcasts again uh, for the members out there. But uh, just to wrap up, Jim, if you are taking on new clients or care to pitch your services at Newcore Energy, and of course, you've given us a, a wealth of information here on this podcast. What would you say to those in the audience that are considering maybe your services? Maybe there's a, a fund or an institution out there, or maybe a utility person listening in, a company listening in. Uh, you know, if you're available, are you taking clients? And would you care to pitch your business just a bit here before we wrap up? Well, you know, my I have a pretty broad range of experience in the industry. I could say 35 years in the fuel cycle. I was president of you know, the largest, I developed into, to a very large extent, the uranium trading as it became very early on. And um, we built up a company that was supplying close to 20 million pounds of uranium per year. Um, essentially, we bought all the output from Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, done a tremendous amount of business with, with Russia, sold to every utility in the world, familiar with all of them, have had partnering agreements with uh, every every uh, company in the fuel cycle, just, uh, converters, fabricators, and richers. Uh, I've managed a portfolio, an $80 million portfolio. That's how we started Nucor. Uh, we, we, unfortunately, so Fukushima, we had to uh, uh, liquidate after that. Uh, we, what we still had to return, you know, the fund still uh, was profitable. But it was before Fukushima, it was generating very impressive returns to the investors. Um, so I've been in the I've been in the P end of business. I've done investing in equities, uh, physical product. I've traded it. I've advised uh, companies uh, on respective financing, marketing, and M and A. So you know I sort of touch almost uh, every part of the fuel cycle and everything that's been in. Uh, every activity that you can conceive of in the fuel cycle. So I think that's a pretty good summary and you know, pretty comprehensive portfolio. Jim, I appreciate that. And uh, for folks who wish to contact you, maybe to seek services and to contact Nucor, what's the best way that they can do so? Uh, J Cornell, C-O-R-N-E-L-L, at Nucor Energy, N-U-C-O-R-E-E-N-E-R-G-Y.com. Well, look, it's always a pleasure. I'll let you get off here and uh, we'll get on with our day here. But uh, thank you for the time and we'll talk soon, Jim. Thanks, Andrew. Have a good one.